This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye-bye-bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5pm in the city. At the close today, the FTSE 100 softer by six-tenths of 1%. The DAX down by a solid 1.41%. In the FX market, a weaker dollar stronger, euro stronger pound. Euro dollar 124.84 on my screen, up six-tenths of 1%. And Cable... The advance continues. 142.47 on the day so far, up by four-tenths of 1%. In the Treasury market, bond yields higher by three or four basis points throughout most of the session, up by almost five now to 2.75% on a US 10-year. So that's the cross-asset fill to this market this Thursday as we count you down to payrolls Friday in the United States. Let's get you some top stories, shall we, and cross over to Bloomberg's Charlie Pell. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrell. Lots of earnings coming out after the Bell, no doubt you'll be talking about that today. Brexit Secretary David Davis is rekindling the debate about the credibility of the government's forecast in a post-Brexit society. At the House of Commons today, he was asked about leaked analysis that suggests the United Kingdom will be worse off after Brexit. Davis says employment in the UK has grown to records despite the forecast and that officials will work to ensure that growth is maintained. And more on Brexit. Britain's International Trade Secretary is doubting whether whether the UK will agree to a Brexit transition phase for businesses. Liam Fox tells Sky News that free trade deals with countries outside the EU would be some time away if there is a period in which the UK can't negotiate with third countries. And in Europe, manufacturing grew this month at one of the fastest paces on record. That's according to the latest Purchasing Managers Index. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrow, back to you. Charlie Pettit, thank you very much. We'll catch up with you in about 29 minutes its time. The economic data in the Eurozone, absolutely solid. Can't say the same thing about the United Kingdom, where the IHS market reported its PMI index for the UK manufacturing. It actually fell last month to the lowest level since June. Sterling managed to shrug that off and shrug off lingering Brexit uncertainties with Britain's International Trade Secretary Liam Fox casting doubt on whether the country will agree to a transition phase to help smooth the divorce process. Joining me for the next 25 minutes or so, David Goodman, UK economy reporter for Bloomberg, alongside Paul Dobson, team leader for Bloomberg Markets Live blog in London. Mr Dobson, why is Sterling shaking off all of those things, both the data and the politics? Yeah, well, uh, I would say that the data is not so weak overall, Jonathan. In fact, it's probably strong enough to give the Bank of England confidence to carry on with rate increases. So we're seeing that being priced increasingly into the front end of the market. Uh, lots of uh, people talking about the possibility of a hike as soon as May or certainly the summer. And that opens the door for two hikes this year, maybe more. If you look at the um, the, the money market curve, people pricing in not only an earlier hike, but also a steeper pace of subsequent hikes too. So it's all about um, monetary policy normalisation, really. Are we really thinking about another rate hike sometime soon in the UK, David? Well, that's certainly what the market is telling us. There's been a real kind of upward shift in, in what 
uh, traders are expecting um, as paul said we're about they're kind of 50 50 for may almost fully priced in for august now so it's certainly on the cards in terms of the manufacturing data there's there's two things i think are worth pointing out one is yes it was a slower than expected number but the the uk manufacturing sector is still expanding like a slower pace but it's still expanding mid 50s is okay david yeah. but compared to the rest of europe they're clearly lagging well, Bank of England policymakers are saying that the actually the rate of growth that the UK can tolerate is is low is lower. The speed limit of the economy has come down, so we don't need a really strong growth rate to to kind of make officials think about um, a rate hike. Especially considering that the other part of that report showed that input prices are accelerating. I think market said it was a market acceleration. That's going to stoke inflation. That's going to worry the policymakers. So those are the kind of two aspects of that report, I think, which maybe explain why we haven't seen a sell-off in the pound today. So, David, does a rate hike at the Bank of England depend on some kind of transition deal, at least agreed with the European Union, before they hike interest rates, or is despite the conversation with the EU? It depends who you talk to. There was a, a UBS note out today in which they said, we think there's going to be a hike in May, assuming there is a transitional deal um agreed by march so for some people it, it matters for others i'm i think less so it's um one of the important things we've got coming up next week there's the bank of England inflation report obviously but they also look at their supply side um, forecasts and if they say more there in terms of how much growth the economy can can handle that that will kind of almost green light uh, an earlier hike for a lot of investors, I think. And to be fair, Paul, we've had this guidance from the Bank of England previously. They'd already communicated that further rate hikes would be warranted. I'm just not sure how many people expected that to come, potentially in May. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, feel, it feels sooner than than a lot of the the man on the street type people would have been would have been expecting and might have been downplayed. I did an interesting thing though, Jonathan. I went back through the last inflation report because one of the things I was thinking about is. Aren't hikes going to be really bad for the housing market? The housing market's already wobbling, you know, yeah. and if the housing market goes down, you know that's not good for the UK economy as a whole. Uh, I did some did some crunching. Frankly, David was on hand to help me out. He's smiling next to me because he, <laughs> he knows he deserves the Basically, credit for you've got, this. you've got Goodman to do the work. You asked the question, Paul. That's, that's, that's the way I work, Joe. <laughs> but, but listen, so there's some interesting things. Actually, uh, so it's saying only a third of households have a mortgage on their home anyway. So two-thirds of the market, a rate hike doesn't matter for homeowners in that respect then it's talking about how the share of fixed rate mortgages is now about 60 percent so of those there's only so many people that are going to be affected by an immediate pass through to those that are on a floating rate mortgage and then it also talks about the fact that savings has increased more than borrowings in the in the past 10 years so that's really interesting i didn't know that at all paul yeah well there you go see that's why that's what you asked me on the show for (laughs) and and so you know there's going to be if they do hike rates the benefits to savers might filter through quicker than the, the the sort of downside for for the borrowers and that means two things it means that a rate hike won't necessarily be too much of a drag on the consumer economy at least and also that if they really want to tighten then they're going to have to raise rates harder the issue being though paul is that traditionally these rates aren't passed on to savers these rate hikes are passed on to borrowers That's been the story here in the United States, and it's been quite a dominant story as well. Do you see the same thing in the UK? There's, honestly, on current accounts, there's so little interest. You know, mostly it's pretty much impossible to get any interest from your bank at the moment. So if we do start to see a genuine increase in 
interest rates, I think that you're likely to feel some pressure coming through from policymakers to pass that on. And also from the government as well. Remember, it's a conservative government. They've been down on the Bank of England for hurting savers. They've had things like these pension bonds that have helped uh, people with a lot of money uh, in their old age set aside to, to earn an extra little bit of revenue on their savings. So I think that you probably feel a political push as well if there wasn't a pass through. So the politics of all of this at the end of the day, what does it come down to, Paul Dobson, for the Conservative Party? Do they need to get this deal done sometime soon? And how much time do they actually have left? The politics the- is just a completely different story for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so hard to understand and to penetrate and to pierce. I think uh, logic still dictates and the market is still very much biased to some kind of a solution, some kind of a compromise and some kind of an agreement. And, you know, a lot of it is negotiating in the public, which is a very difficult thing to do. So yeah. uh, still a long way to go on that, though, and uncertainty will probably build before we finally get there. And they're doing their best not to um, have this negotiation in public. Um, I think the media's trying to stop that from happening. Paul Dobson alongside David Goodman, Bloomberg's very own. Next up on the programme, we're going to talk about Bitcoin, the route that is turning out to be 2018 for cryptocurrencies. That's ahead on the cable, extending a January slide in Bitcoin. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Bitcoin proving cryptocurrencies can erase wealth as quickly as they create it. It's January slide knocking more than $44 billion off the $200 billion in market value it generated in 2017. Concerns are mounting amid the possibility of increased regulation and the viability of the cryptocurrency itself. With me today, Paul Goodman, UK economy reporter, and Paul Dobson, team leader for Bloomberg Markets Live blog in London. Paul, compared to, say, December, how much have you been covering Bitcoin? Honestly, I've not been watching it very closely. You've given up. I feel the same way. Why do you think that's happened? Well, it's more exciting when prices are going up. Or is, that, some... is that right? Because I hear that journalists prefer prices going the other way. Uh, well, mostly. I mean, our readers like it when there's pain and stuff like that. When we start to fee- find these Bitcoin millionaires who went out and splurged or racked up debt based on their earnings and suddenly can't repay it because their Bitcoins are down or something like that, that would be a fun story, wouldn't it? And I think that there will be a great deal of mirth and merriment among Bloomberg's core users, uh, the money managers who either haven't got involved because they've been sceptical of it or because yeah. they haven't been allowed to, you know, to see it come back down again, to see these, the you know, the man on the street who's a self-made millionaire off the back of something that nobody really understands the logic of terribly well. Um, that would definitely be something I think that would be an entertainment value for a lot of the people in the city. On the other hand, there's nothing to say that it can't come back again at some point. I mean, every time that it has had a dip so far or a drawdown, there's been another rally and there's been more buyers willing to come in and, you know, throw caution to the wind and, and push it up again. One of the things that I've really struggled with and others have as well is just building a story around the intraday price action. I find it very difficult to say from one day to another why it's up 20 percent, why it's down 15, why it trades at 20K, why it's at 10 compared to where we were a month ago. 
I, I don't get it. I still don't get it. And I'm very open to saying I don't understand the price action on any given day in Bitcoin. But would you say, Paul, that we're starting to see the regulation concerns start to bleed into this market a little bit more? And that should be a good thing longer term, shouldn't it? If, they, uh, if there's less um, of a possible front for criminal activity or nefarious activity and more of a possibility for it to become uh, more stable and fairer and um, less corruptible uh, tool for the international markets, then maybe... maybe uh, if it's not Bitcoin, maybe one of the other ones, but maybe one of them can make it and can actually be the thing that it's supposed to be, the international uh, finance tool and not, you know, kind of like a, a speculative investment. I do take issue with the idea that we need to clamp down on Bitcoin because we need to clamp down on criminal activity. We absolutely need to clamp down on criminal activity, David, but criminal activity often mostly takes place in cash. So if we're going to really clamp down on cryptocurrencies, are they going to have to clamp down on cash too? Because you can't really do one without doing the other. Um, I guess not. Although I think in terms of the, the criminal aspects of how Bitcoin is used, that certainly is what's driving, I think, a lot of the regulators. And we, I'm not sure if you saw Carney speak earlier in this week, but as ever, it's a central banker in these days. He, get, he gets asked about Bitcoin fairly early on in his, in proceedings, he was in front of the House of Lords Committee. And well, should Carney ban the £50 note then? Well, I mean, you have seen um, central banks in, I think, in Europe and, and Switzerland um, lower the denomination of, of notes that are available. I think the €500 Euro note is no more for that reason. So you, people are trying to clamp down on it. I think, obviously, a central bank has far more control over which denominations of note they issue than, than Bitcoin at the moment, which is probably why they're trying to... <laughs> <laughs> bring it more into the regulation. David Goodman, UK economy reporter and Paul Dobson, team leader for Bloomberg Markets, live blog in London. Sticking with me next up on the programme, Bridgewater, Ray Dalio's firm, tripling its wages against Italian firms. We'll get stuck into what Ray Dalio and Bridgewater wipe me up to. That's next. Before we get there, a check on traffic, weather and all the news you need to wrap up your day. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jonathan Farrow. In Europe, everything looks great. In Italy, things look solid. But Ray Dalio's Bridgewater Associates is tripling its bet against Italian banks. The hedge fund has boosted its bets against the Italian banking sector to $3 billion and 18 firms. This comes as the Italian election looms in early March. With me today, David Goodman, UK economy reporter, and Paul Dobson, team leader for Bloomberg Markets Live blog in London. Paul Dobson, hard to get into the mind of the individuals over at Bridgewater. So I'll try and avoid speculating as to what they're up to. But let's just try and craft a bearish case for Italy if we can between us. Because I think for some reason things have changed <laughs> and actually it's probably easier to craft a bullish view of Italy compared to a couple of years ago. So what's the bearish view, Paul? Right, well, the, the bearish view is it's an economy that's desperately in need of reform, uh, that's in need of changes to 
all of the underlying uh, underpinnings of its financial sector, of its labor laws and stuff like that, to modernize, basically. And there's a great deal of intransigence and there's a great deal of resistance and there's a great deal of disagreement to all of that. It's also a country with a humongous debt load, isn't it? Uh, very weighty on an outright basis and on a GDP basis as well. And it's a country that has slow growth and not great deal of innovation and new businesses coming through. And it's a political mess. So with an election looming, uh, there's discontent in parts of Italy with the structure of the euro area, the currency mechanism and the uh, immigration. And if that boils over, it could produce either a very unstable coalition, which is not something that's too surprising, or in, in a worst case scenario for financial markets, it could produce a government that's led by the kind of uh, five star movement, which is uh, reasonably anti-EU and says if it can't get some of the changes through that it wants, then it might want to think about taking Italy out of the euro area in the future. So the cataclysmic investor scenario yeah. is one where, where Italy goes, there's a new currency, there's a currency crash as the lira starts trading again, as it devalues relative to the euro. There's lots of financial uncertainty. You We're know. really going along the road here, aren't we? <laughs> That's the worst case scenario, Jonathan. Yeah, well, you know, I asked you to paint the picture and you have. It's just interesting that not so long ago, being long Italy was the contrarian view, and now apparently being short Italy is the contrarian view. David, it's certainly not the consensus that I witness that people are worried about this Italian election. Do you see any anyone worried about this upcoming Italian election? Well, I think if you look at elections in Europe over the last three, four years, and Paul and I covered a lot of these back in our old Bonds FX days, there's often quite a lot of you could call it complacency or people just not looking at these risks for, for quite a long time in the run-up to them. And then there's often a moment, um, you saw it in the Scottish referendum in um, in the UK and the Brexit to an extent, where the market suddenly wakes up and suddenly it becomes a big risk and that's where you see a kind of a, a big bit of selling or, or, or whatever at that point. So, I mean, if you're shorting beforehand, then you're kind of preparing for that moment, I guess, to an extent. The other, I suppose the, the other point about this is that the amount of the amount of reaction to um these kind of elections isn't always as big as you'd expect even if you get a result that investors apparently fear i mean you saw you've seen that in kind of inclusive elections in spain or yeah. the netherlands where you'd expect there to be a big market reaction and, and really people get over these things very quickly and, and look towards the next risk and brexit maybe had a, a longer effect on on sterling than elsewhere but i think that someone in 2016 said it took a, a month to go over uh, over brexit that's a right week to get over trump and a day to get over the italian referendum i think that's that quote is going to stay with me since then well paul to bring up the question of re-denomination risk i think one of the reasons why some investors have pushed back the italian risk as far as the election is concerned is that they don't see it as a re-denomination risk event because these parties know that if you run on an anti-europe let's leave euro platform, you won't do well. In fact, that's what went against Marine Le Pen in the French election. She could have done much better in the eyes of some people if she had ditched that bid to leave the Eurozone. Do you think that's the lesson that the Italian parties, the Five Star Movement, have learned from the French experience and therefore actually it's less of a risk event this time around? Well, yes, they are saying explicitly that they don't want to leave the Euro or have to leave the Euro. 
uh, maybe depending on the nuances of the language. So that is a that is a change from what we might have expected from them six or nine or twelve months ago. Um, yeah, so so the base case has changed, and I think that as a result, uh, you're seeing a lot of a lot of optimism within the market within finance as well. I saw on Twitter today they said if the election result um, goes uh, well, then it will be like the French election was and there'll be plenty of feel-good factor afterwards. If it goes badly, it will be like when there was the Greek election and um, and the new government came in trying to push back against austerity and eventually, after a lot of uh, effort and blood and sweat and tears, it kind of turned into something that was also not a risk for the market. So people see it as a kind of almost a win-win situation, which is why yeah. it's, uh, it's the sort of thing where there is an opportunity to come in if you've got deep pockets and do a short trade because there is the, you know, if once the positioning gets too far one way, there is the opportunity or the possibility that things can correct in the opposite direction. But you, you see this Bridgewater bet. I mean, that's what I'm saying about you've got to have deep pockets because at the moment and there's little sign pockets, of it Paul. in the markets down the <laughs> list. You know, some of the banks they're shorting are up like 15% so far this year. Yeah. This year, that's only a, a month into this year. Um, kind of the Italian stock index, the FTSE MIB is up about eight percent this year so if you're if you're betting that it's going to decline then you're taking on a certain amount of risk right now and in the bonds market as well same thing kind of happened we had a big rally in italian government bonds today the the futures were up you know kind of the most in three weeks we had a huge auction of italian debt earlier it was taken down by the market the bonds have rallied there's no sign at the moment that the market is particularly worried about these elections. Not at all. And you'd have to say that the ECB has really insulated the sovereign debt market. Raises also the question that if you want to go short a country, then maybe you do it through the companies within that country and not the sovereign debt anymore. Guys, it's been great to catch up with you. David Goodman, our economy reporter in the UK, and Paul Dobson, the team leader for Bloomberg Markets Live on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow. On Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the beautiful city of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.30 in the city at the close today. A softer one on the FTSE 100, down six-tenths of 1% almost. The DAX off by 1.41%. In the FX market, weaker dollar, stronger euro, stronger pound. Euro dollar testing 125 at 124.93. The high for the session, 124.98. If you like round numbers out there... We're really, really just short of one for euro dollar. That weaker dollar story reflected in the cable cross as well. Sterling up to 142.60 against the US dollar, up by half of 1% on the session. And in the treasury market, yields just keep grinding higher, up by three or four basis points. Call it three and a half to 2.74%. The high for the day, 2.752% on a US 10-year yield. So that gives you a cross-asset feel of this market ahead of a big earnings day. Let's get you some top stories. And say hello to Bloomberg's Charlie Kelly. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. Indeed, Amazon, Apple, after the closing bell. Big day indeed. Busiest day of the quarter for earnings today among S&P 500 companies. Brexit Secretary David Davis rekindling the debate about the credibility of the government's forecast in a post-Brexit society. At the House of Commons, Davis was asked about leaked analysis suggesting the UK will be worse off after Brexit. Davis says employment in the UK has grown to record levels despite the forecasts and the that officials will
will work to ensure that growth is maintained. Staying on the subject of Brexit, Britain's International Trade Secretary doubts whether the UK will agree to a Brexit transition phase for businesses. Liam Fox told Sky News that free trade deals with countries outside the EU would be some time away if there is a period in which the UK can't negotiate with third countries. And in Europe, manufacturing grew this month at one of the fastest paces on record. That's according to the latest Purchasing Managers Index. That is the latest from our news desk. Jonathan Farrow, back to you. Charlie Pellet, thank you very My much, pleasure, sir. sir. You enjoy the rest of your day. I cannot believe <laughs> in the UK we're having a conversation about rate hikes again at the Bank of England. Um, Vince Signorella joining me around a table in New York alongside Cameron Christ, Bloomberg's very own and two of our very best. Vince, what are we doing? It, this is back to the story we had last week where central banks are trying to chase this imaginary uh, elusive inflation well at least it's real in the UK yeah but uh, you know what you just can't you can't fight inflation in just this one country by raising rates in a global environment and import inflation and expect that you're going to raise rates and and beat the boogeyman down and eventually is going to come back to undermine your economic growth and it's as simple as that yeah Cameron well, from my perspective, if you've got inflation because your currency has been trolleyed, then rate hikes that that encourage a little bit of currency strength are, uh, you know, probably going to be more effective um, than might otherwise be the case. I would also say that uh, it is a reasonable theory that almost a decade past the crisis, that putting rates at zero forever might not be the best. Yeah. idea you know yeah. the, the the analogy is that the patient has been in intensive care for years and years and years they're no longer in danger of dying okay they still need some treatment i.e some easy monetary policy but you can eventually take them out of intensive care and a, a moderate normalizing cycle which is even in the united states is really what we've observed isn't going to be the end of the world and if you look at the economic outcomes and the market outcomes that they've had in the United States since the Fed started raising interest rates. Okay, inflation hasn't really gone anywhere, but everything else has done just fine, thank you. We'd well, have much. to say, you know, I've had this conversation on this program over the last couple of days, if we've looked back at Fed Chair Janet Yellen's term, she has had the luxury of inflation not really ever surprising to the upside, which has meant she could carry on moving gradually without any real urgency. She's also had the luxury of the ECB and the BOJ killing the foot down on the accelerator, which has meant that somehow, and it's happened, Yellen carried on hiking and financial conditions carried on loosening. You'd have to say, Cameron, that it's not because they're hiking, it's because everyone else has been stimulating. To a degree, although I might also suggest that even though they have been hiking, monetary conditions, you know, interest rates are still very, very low. Yeah. And policy is still very, very accommodative. So I personally think that, you know, they could have easily done more without necessarily any deleterious... Uh, you know, consequences. I, I don't disagree with you, Vince, but the question I'm trying to ask is whether Jay Powell takes over the reins of the Federal Reserve and has the luxury of an aggressive ECB to pursue the monetary policy he wants to pursue. Well, I'm not sure how aggressive the ECB can be. I That's mean, exactly my point. It, now, if the ECB is going to step back, are we actually going to see a Federal Reserve hike? And as a consequence, 
get a tightening of financial conditions because we haven't witnessed that. I, I, I think that's absolutely the, the, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. That's more the likely scenario than not. Draghi has said many, many times he will let monetary policy go way past where the economy is recovering. We're not seeing inflation in the Eurozone. Yes, to your point, we are seeing some in, uh, tick in higher in UK CPI, but we're still lower than where we were six years ago. We're not seeing any inflation to worry about in the US. Draghi's as we spoke about before, is in the perfect situation. He's not seeing inflation. He's seeing economic growth. The currency is supportive. What's there to be afraid of? There's no inflation to catch. The, the, it's, it's the perfect no, scenario. bottom line. I, I agree with you. Uh, Rates are low and the economy's something growing. Something else I'm, I'm really Hallelujah. keeping my eye on at the moment, Cameron, is that you've had this aggressive backup in Treasury yields from a September low last year of just north of 2% to the 275 we kissed today. And yet you haven't seen any credit stress whatsoever <clears throat> off the back of it. You've had a repricing of buns as well throughout the whole of this week. And guess what? Peripheral spreads are still really tight. You haven't seen them blow out either. This is all pretty positive if you're a central banker at the moment, seeing no signs of credit stress in high yield and investment grade spreads. And if you're Draghi, no signs of credit stress on the periphery either, despite a significant repricing of treasuries and bonds. Yeah, although I think you could perhaps argue that corporate bond spreads should really be more correlated with what's going on in the equity market than necessarily, you know, Complete, because I mean, completely agree, <laughs> right, but, but so, they haven't been in Europe, have so, they? They've, they've been based on an ECB buying aggressively corporate paper. Uh, yeah, and to a degree, that's still going on, right? So, I mean, maybe you need to see... I mean, what that tells you is that even though corporates have been issuing fairly um, aggressively, the net, you know, the net supply hasn't really been an issue. And ultimately, the fundamentals are still pretty good in terms of corporate balance sheets uh, and their ability to finance the debt. So once you start to see some nerves creep into the equity market, that's typically when you see spreads blow out. For example, in the US, the correlation between the VIX, a smooth measure of the VIX and high yield spreads is, is, is actually pretty good. So um, so from that perspective, it was interesting yes, over the last few days to see even as, as equity volatility, the VIX blew out, high yield spreads were pretty well behaved. And that was perhaps a suggestion that the blowout in equity vol may have been just sort of reaching for you know reaching for hedges into month end rather than a, a, yeah. a, a real underlying uh, you know underlying stress there. We almost got a, a fifteen handle on the VIX. I love well, we that. did. I, I, we I did. Love, I love that blowout idea. Yeah, maybe maybe you were getting your lunch. We, uh... <laughs> was that a wedding? <laughs> I was at a wedding. You're right, Vince. Thank you very much. <laughs> Next up on the program, we'll talk tech earnings, Amazon, Apple. Alphabet, all reporting after the bell, a significant chunk of change in the U.S. equity market, a conversation about those three companies. In just a moment, you're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow. On Bloomberg Radio. Tech earnings continue today. Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, all reporting after the bell. Yesterday, we heard from Facebook and Microsoft, both trading hard today, printing new all-time highs after beating analyst estimates. Vincent Signorella with me, global macro strategist for Bloomberg. Cameron Kreiss, macro strategist for Bloomberg, still 
with us. Why don't you get the global, Cameron? Why does um, Vince get the global macro strategist? Why don't you get the global? Well, I, I think that's redundant. It's, it's, it's uh, just, you know, it's, it's implicit. In it's the, implicit uh, in the macro. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gents, one question on tech. Um, Vince, yeah. when do we get a stock split over at Amazon? We were just talking about it. You know, that, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I think, and I'm sort of going off the box perhaps a little bit out of this, but I think, do. I think that Apple should wait for that situation if and when the pressure ever comes from the federal government that Apple is getting a little too big. Amazon. Amazon yeah. is getting a little too big and people are worried that uh, you know they're, they've got their finger in too many pies and they're worried about potentially a breakup of the company and that's when you do the stock split and everybody owns it and the popular opinion is leave them alone. $1,434 a share. We also joked about how much Berkshire Hathaway costs. Um, Berkshire Hathaway A shares are $325,310. So uh, Jeff Bezos could take this to where Warren Buffett, Cameron? <laughs> he could carry yeah, on watching that stock go up. Although uh, Amazon has split in the past. The yeah. last time was uh, 1999. Um, they did it in the beginning of September 1999. And a few months thereafter, the dot-com bubble burst and it all went horribly wrong the, for the Mr. reason Bezos. i'm asking so the may, maybe is, is a, maybe know, there's a pavlovian i, I thing think here. i think the big time institutional investor would say stock split who cares it shouldn't make a difference to the company it's the same market cap etc etc but there's a lot of retail investors out there that i'm sure would like to buy an amazon share cameron but can't because they cost over a thousand dollars each well that hasn't stopped people buying iphone tens True, See, true. I'm a professional. Isn't it like you that are, segue you, into yeah, Apple that's there? Nice. I mean, that's, that's nice. That's nice. I like good, that. Yeah, I yeah. like that. And it's uh, a good question as well. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I wouldn't pay a grand for an Apple phone. You'd buy uh, an uh, you'd buy an Amazon share instead. Uh, actually, I would not, and I have not. And, uh, <laughs> we I won't ask will. Vince. We won't ask Vince. We won't ask Vince. <laughs> We're not even going to go there. We can talk about Apple though. The report. Don't do that to Jeff. The, the report. <laughs> the, <laughs> the reports, Cameron, over the last week or so is that they're cutting production, or at least telling the suppliers to cut production because the demand's not there. I guess we'll find out whether that's true later. But are we starting to test the tolerance of a consumer with a, a price point of a thousand dollars? Is enough enough? Yeah, quite potentially. Uh, it's you know, it, it's interesting to speculate, and obviously there's been a lot of uh, speculation in in it, so even some of the chip stocks that have performed well in terms of earnings haven't actually seen it in the share price because of these concerns that that Apple, which is sort of the source of demand for so many uh, semiconductors, uh, isn't going to you know isn't going to live up to to what's uh, baked into the cake. Um, yeah, I mean it's fun to speculate, but at the end of the day, until we hear from the from the horse's mouth, that's all it is is uh, sort of idle speculation. But uh, it, is, it is interesting that Apple is actually down on the year, even though the rest of the market in yeah. aggregate. Has but done it's interesting well. to me as well that we're talking about fang jitters ahead of these earnings and Facebook reports. Some pretty, you've got to say, dreadful metrics in terms of engagement and user growth. Yet the stock. Is it an all-time high? And investors took about five minutes to shake that off, Vince. Yeah, no, I, I mean, back to Apple. Is it really $1,000 an item? Or is it the fact that the Android phones have made great inroads in technology and Apple's offer for their new iPhone were talking emojis? I, that wasn't enough for you, Vince? I, I, the, the, talking talking, emoji? the talking poop emoji didn't do it for me, I'm just saying. Okay. Well, I just, you know, I'm just asking. I don't have a view. 
Never got a horse in this race, have I? <laughs> Vincent Signorella, global macro strategist for Bloomberg, alongside Cameron Kreiss, macro strategist for Bloomberg. <laughs> Gents, great to have you with me on the programme. Next up on the programme, a conversation about the day ahead as we count you down to payrolls Friday. This is Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Big day ahead. Tech earnings first. Apple, Amazon, Alphabet reporting earnings after the bell. Those results dropping just after 4 p.m. Eastern time. Then we fast forward to tomorrow where in the United States it is Payrolls Friday, the U.S. monthly jobs report. With me to break things down, Bloomberg macro strategist Cameron Kreiss and Bloomberg Global macro strategist Vince Signorello. This is going to be the gift that keeps giving for a long time to me. I, none of our listeners are interested, but I can tell you I'm going to have fun with the idea. None, that of, none of your panellists are you, either. You, this, you got, this is you got an a, extra word on your title. This is as exciting as Charlie Pellet's wife's bathroom habits. That's all I'm going to say. Charlie Pellet, honestly, his wife gets a hard time on this program. I hope she's never listening. I love Charlie, but he really needs to stop. Um, Vince, set me up for payrolls tomorrow. What would you like to know? What are we looking for? Same as always? Same as always. Same as always. There's nothing in the payrolls other than the um, the average hourly earnings or what consumers are earning that is going to excite anyone. And that data, every time we look at it, goes up a little, goes down a little. And the short end is wage inflation is not here in the United States. So... I'm not sure what, why we keep looking at this data as if we're going to, there's a crystal ball in there somewhere, but yeah. it never leads us to where we want to go. It just takes us for a couple of algo blips during the day where the markets get a little dizzy and then we end up right back where we start. Mr. Kreiss? Well, actually, I think there's an edge here. Um, okay, a, walk us through that. That's quite exciting because no one's um, told me that so far. The, I think there's a very good chance that the uh, uh, wage data, which is, I would agree, the focus is going to be disappointing because there's a little quirk in how they calculate it, such that when the 12th of the month is on a Friday, as it was in January, that anyone who gets paid on the 15th, which is many, many people, uh, their wages are not included. So if you anyone who gets a pay raise in January, which a lot of people do, uh, they're... They're essentially anyone. If you get paid in the middle of the month, it's not reflected in the data. So, Interesting. So it tends to be very disappointing when the twelfth is on a Friday. They don't adjust for that. No, they don't. Wow, so, I did not know so that. So the last twelve times the twelfth uh, uh, was on a Friday, the average, the monthly gain has been zero or below nine of them. Wow. And uh, it's forecast at point two. So there's a few people who are onto this. Like Jan Hatzius, as you'd expect. So is this is a it. bit of a short-term trade because ultimately yes. this gets ironed out. But yeah, if you, yeah, yeah. If you it, wanted to take a, a little flutter, some optionality around the dollar and treasuries, et cetera. Well, yeah, I think that from the from my, I'm viewing it through the prism of treasuries in particular. Yeah. Where um, you know the dollar, I think people are short, and so bad data will just encourage them to add to positions. Whereas treasuries, people are also short. Gotcha. So bad data could given the sort of the one-way train that has been U.S. Treasury yields, encourage a little bit of profit-taking. So that's what I'm looking at. Okay. Outside of payrolls, guys, you've got to say the Federal Reserve, 
I assume on autopilot, we're going to get a hike a quarter, maybe. Is that how this is going to work? Well, uh, no. Uh, in fact, I've written a piece to that effect. Well, walk us through it then, because that's the consensus view, Cameron. Well, it, it's a, it, the consensus is that we'll get three or four this year, yeah, uh, and then maybe another three next year, although that's not what's in the price because you always build in a risk premium. But my theory is that if you use a framework that's done very well in explaining the Fed in the past, uh, which is the Taylor rule, uh, if you make the appropriate adjustments, you can get to three hikes this year, no problem, but then it says there's going to be no hikes next year uh, unless you tweak something that is very uh, opaque, which is the what's known as R star, which is the neutral real uh, Fed funds rate, which they currently think is about zero. It's not something they forecast. They occasionally say what they think it is, but not in any systematic way. So this is going to lead to, I think, to a more opaque reaction function from the Fed. Uh, and that's going to engender a, quite a bit more uh, volatility and make it a little more difficult to, to accurately project what you think they're going to do based on the framework that has worked in the past. So you're one of the individuals this year, Cameron, that actually sees quite a pickup in cross-asset vol this year. I am. And what gives you the conviction around that? Is it just the Federal Reserve story? Is there something else? Well, I think we've lived through many, many years now of policymakers basically saying, here's exactly what we're going to do. And guess what? If you know what's, if you know what's coming, there's no surprise. Um, now, we've seen with the ECB, yes, they are still guiding. Um, but even there, the, the ECB itself can't figure out how to communicate it. So that naturally engenders a little more uncertainty. And then as I've just uh, explained, I think you have a transition at the Fed at the, at the helm. Yeah. So insofar as the, the chairman of the Fed or the chair of the Fed uh, drives the bus in terms of setting the agenda, well, we don't really know. I mean, we think that it's just business as usual with Jay Powell, but we're not really sure. We do know that he favors less regulation, all else being equal, less regulation in the banking sector means that the, you know, the authorities aren't directing behavior. So normally you would expect the price of money to have a greater influence on behavior. And that would, all else being equal, suggest the price of money should go up uh, a little bit more. Um, and then as, I've, you know, as I've explained, there's this uncertainty with the framework. And then, listen, I think we can say that the Fed's going to be tightening rates. That will suggest that the real Fed funds rate will probably go positive at some point yeah. this year. Um, which is a little more restrictive than, or a little less accommodative than we've seen in the past. Financial, U.S. financial conditions are basically the easiest they've ever been, according to the, Go the Goldman Sachs index. I would suggest if you get the real funds rate positive, yeah. um, that there's a chance that that should tighten. And, and all else being equal, <laughs> you know, volatility is like a spring. The, 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 the longer and harder that you compress it, the more sort of potential energy there is in there. And... I mean, I don't think it's a particularly controversial statement to say that, you know, with VIX at eight, which is where it was a few week, you know, a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, I don't know when the next nine vols are coming, but I know which direction the next nine vols are coming in. Well, right? um, I, I've got to say that just because Vince has the extra word in his, in his title, it doesn't mean he doesn't get to talk, Cameron. <laughs> um, you've got 30 seconds left to add to that, Vince. <laughs> I, I, I think that vol has been up just because of this. Uh, the, 
this, this silliness that came around about January 31st. We have followed very high. I think what the Fed is expected to do is is pretty clear that the, we're going to a more hawkish Fed as we've turned over individuals. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there are going to be that many surprises come 2018. Got to leave it there, Vince. Our global macro strategist at Bloomberg alongside our macro strategist, Cameron Christ. Gents, that was fun. This is Bloomberg Radio. This was The Cable. <laughs> 